The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hands, excuse me, in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Keep your Bibles open there to Revelation 2. We're in this rather quick series on where is the love. Ephesus is our main topic, and we were with them last week. Mike was there in the first week, and we'll be with them here in Revelation and then back to the letter Uh, next week for the final sermon. Last week, Todd Andrews and I were talking about City Church in Philadelphia, and I mentioned that one way that they could be a help to us is through their example of being transparent. How, How street people and people who are really needy are very often transparent, and we who are not so needy tend to not be so very transparent. Well, the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia are examples of how much Jesus values transparency. And he has a very high value on it. In fact, Jesus valued it so highly that when he instructed John to write this book, that it was to be sent to all seven churches that are listed in chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia. This means that each church is not only going to read their own report card, but they are also going to read the report card of the other churches. I thought in keeping with the idea of transparency, it might be good if I led by example and shared with you my report card. Now, you'll find my most recent one uh, tucked in with all the other reports in our 
member's book. But that's, that's a little disingenuous because I wrote it. Did you ever get to write your own report card and then have the teacher just sign it? No. So maybe you ought to write the report card for me and stick it in the member's book. And then you can say, hey, pay attention. This is where you need some improvement, Prater. But, you know, as I said before, I hope you'll get that member's book. I hope you'll read it. I hope you'll rejoice. But I thought I should be even more transparent. And so I brought with me my report card uh, from, this is the first report card I received, um, my earliest report card. And we're going we're gonna to put it up on the screen. Uh, hopefully you can see it there, just the front page. You see it's the Chicago Public Schools, right? And Benjamin C. Willis, I remember him well. He was the general superintendent of the schools. It's there, it's June 1964. There's my name, little Kenny Prater, Pulaski Elementary School, McLean Avenue, Chicago. And uh, Mrs. Betty Coleman, uh, God, God bless her, was my, my teacher who knows if she went on to an illustrious teaching career or said, if this is what it's like, I'm out of here. I'll go become a firefighter or something. Uh, you, you can see that um, in the first 10-week period, I was at school every day. I was never tardy. That's good, right? And then in the second 10 weeks, I apparently skipped school for a half day. Um, there was a candy store on the way, so, um, but amazingly, I was not tardy. Uh, that changed quickly in my life as I got older, but... Um, there you go. So, so, so far, so good, right? So far, so good. But the next page, um, we have to look at as well, and that is uh, my kindergarten work in the first 10-week period. And as you can see, if you can see that, it says I was satisfactory. That's good, right? And then in the next 10-week period, <laughs> I was satisfactory as well. I mean, right? Pat on the back. Well done, Kenny Prater. But then you get to the third page of the report card. And on the third page, um, the habits listed below, <laughs> here's what it says, the habits listed below are necessary for the personal and social development of your child. A check indicates need for improvement. Now, it doesn't say if I talked too much or talk too little. It just says what? Talks. We're going to assume that I probably talked too much. And um, who knows if I got along better and stopped talking, the assumption is probably not. But there you go. Uh, as an elder, of the Church of Jesus at Durkeytown, St. James, I am acutely aware that just as the seven churches in Asia are being examined by Jesus, we are being examined as well. He, the chief shepherd and bishop of our souls, is at this present moment visiting us uh, through his spirit and through his word. And just as these seven churches received a report card, we too will be called to give an answer for how we stewarded the church of Jesus Christ in this place at this time. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? And if not, will you think about that?
In his commentary on uh, Revelation, theologian, theologian G, uh, uh, George Ladd writes this, and we'll, we'll put it up on the screen and get my report card off of there. Thank you very much. Um, George Ladd writes this. The Revelation pictures a life and death struggle between Jesus and the Antichrist for the hearts of men. And the conqueror is he who is unswervingly loyal to his Lord, even though it cost him his life. You see, because Jesus is so acutely aware of the power of the enemy to come, to steal, to destroy, to murder, he is asking the church to listen to what the Spirit is saying. And here at Ephesus, he's asking them to hear what the Spirit is saying about love and the fact that they had abandoned love. And as we think about this question, where is the love? We need to take it seriously as well. For that struggle is as real today in our lives as it was when John wrote this letter because loving Jesus is always the main thing. But it is not always easy to keep the main thing the main thing. So Jesus wants to know, where's the love? Where's the love? This appeal by Jesus is understood to be a course correction. Not only for Ephesus, but for the other six churches as well. We have to remember, it does not take long for a church to become in a state of decline. So that you end up like Laodicea, where Jesus is on the outside of the church. Knocking on the door, seeing if he can get permission to come inside. It starts with lovelessness. And it ends with such a lukewarmness that Jesus would say that he prefers cold indifference over our half-heartedness towards him. He prefers cold indifference rather than half-heartedness towards him. In this question, where is the love, there is such kindness and compassion from Jesus because what it shows us is that Jesus desires us to be in a fully reconciled, loving relationship with him. He desires this so much from us. Over my ministry career, I've been in situations in counseling where one person in the relationship wanted to reconcile with the other, but the other didn't want to. And there was no hope. I've been in counseling situations where neither person wanted to reconcile. So dreadful. But I've also been in counseling situations where both parties wanted to reconcile. They just didn't know how. They didn't know how to fix their problems. And I am so very, very thankful to Jesus that he just doesn't say to the church, you got a love problem, fix it. He says, you got a love problem, and I love you so much, I'm going to tell you how to fix it. And if you follow my advice, 
You won't get your lampstand removed if you follow my advice. Jesus is telling us today exactly what we are to do to fix our love problem as well. It begins in verse number 5 with the word remember. Remember, therefore, where, from where you have fallen. Now, remembering in this situation is not sentimentality. How many of you have ever been to like a Cracker Barrel or maybe a gift shop, and they have that rack of books, and the books are dated, uh, and then inside is all of the information about that year, and you go and you look the year you're born, you find out how much a house costs, how much a loaf of bread costs, and all of that, and you look at it, oh, I, I remember the old, oh, that was so good, remember when, you know, you, and you read through it, and you get all sentimental because Patsy Klein was singing, or whatever it was that you thought was great. And then the other person says, well, yeah, but we didn't have any heat in the house. Like, it was, it was cold all the time, you know. Yeah, the, the bread was cheap, but the, there was no heat, you know. Um, this isn't sentimentality when Jesus says remember. Remembering is a necessary step towards repenting. And if you don't take the step of remembering, you're not going to get to the place of Repentance. The instruction Jesus gives follows the pattern that you see throughout the Old Testament, especially among the prophets, who were constantly calling the people back to the law. Remember, remember, remember. It also follows the pattern uh, of Jesus' earthly ministry as well as apostolic ministry that calls people to remember. And so Jesus takes up that charge of remembering the word that is set in, uh, in the Greek is set in the present active imperative. And I had to go look that up to make sure I knew what it meant. Sounds really good because it is. See, the Greek language is written that the way the word is set in its tense kind of indicates its meaning. And so if you took the word remember and you saw it in the original Greek language, what it would actually mean is this. Continually be mindful. Don't just have a one-time remembering, looking at that book. Oh, yeah, you remember back in the day I used to do this in church? Boy, that sure was great. Oh, we had such a good time. Be constantly, continually remembering. Don't let Christ out of your mind, out of your sight. So we say, well, what is Jesus asking them to remember? And, and it's a bit of a mystery. And the only clue we get is when Jesus says to Ephesus, remember therefore from where you have fallen. From where you have fallen. Now, I, I'm confident that uh, the church at Ephesus at that time would have understood what Jesus meant when they re read, read the letter and, and got it. Uh, commentators have kind of indicated and helped us out to say that most likely it means that in its in its early days, the church at Ephesus had reached some great heights in their effectiveness as a church, primarily because they were keeping the main thing the main thing. They were loving Jesus. And we're not told if there was an exact time or place that their love for Jesus was lost. We're only told that they indeed had abandoned their first love, and now it's some time to do something about it. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. 
if George Ladd's observation is correct, and I tend to think it is, about the struggle presented in Revelation, it would help us to remember that by remembering, we take not only the first step towards repentance, but also towards overcoming the spirit of Antichrist that would take over the church and tear the church apart and create all kinds of problems within the church. But this remembering takes time and great intentionality. And so I don't want you to think that um, Jesus is proposing some kind of a quick fix. He is not proposing a quick fix. To find what has been abandoned is hard. But as I said, Jesus will be with us. He is here with us. He is here for our good. He loves us as the great shepherd of the sheep. He is continually mindful of us. Do you know, are you sure to know that Jesus has never abandoned his love for us? Now would be a good time to say amen. (laughs) He has never abandoned his love for us. So remember, but then he tells them, repent. And, and, And when you repent, do the works you did at first. So I I believe uh, repentance assumes then that the church is going to do the hard work of remembering. And and this is, again, absolute importance because without the first step of remembering, you're not going to be very thorough in doing the second part of repenting. Now, we've all experienced this, by the way, in human relationships. Where someone has been cold and loveless towards you, and you say, you know, you don't treat me very nicely, or, you know, we don't get together much anymore, or whatever you might say, and then the person does like a cosmetic repair. Buys you flowers, takes you out to eat, buys you a toy, whatever. That's a cosmetic repair. But repentance asks for so much more. If love is to be restored, it will require a much deeper examination of the attitudes and then motivations that drive the actions. And what are the primary actions that have been presented by the church at Ephesus? They were a doctrinal powerhouse. I mean, if you wanted good doctrine, go to Ephesus. The place was full of people who could point you to the right doctrine. But what was the motivation behind the right doctrine? It says, Robert read, you may have all knowledge. You may have faith that moved mountains. You may even give your life as a sacrifice to be burned, but if you do not have love, it's nothing. I mean, Christians like us who hold doctrine at such a high value, we have to ask ourselves, in light of all of our knowledge, have we lost love for Jesus? Is Jesus the motivating and driving, compelling reality of our life? Or is it like, oh man, I, 
I just read the most amazing thing you got to read. Let's get a book and let's study it. Oh, it's going to be so good. Without love, nothing. And repentance involves two things. It's a turning from and it's a moving towards. By remembering what they once were, they can begin then to turn from the things that led them to abandon their love for Jesus. And as they turn from lovelessness, they begin to turn towards Jesus with love. And as they do that, they begin to do again the works they did it first. Now, again, it's a, it's a bit oblique. There's not a lot to tell us, except when you go back to Acts 19 and 20, I think you can detect what were the works that they did at first. I would summarize it like this. The very earliest mark of the church at Ephesus was a willingness to live under the authority of God's word and then to act on it with authority. The battle for Ephesus was all about who had the power. And if you read back through Acts number 19, you'll see that there are a lot of powerful forces in Ephesus, pagan forces, military forces, trade unions, money. It was a place of power. And here's the Apostle Paul with 12 men that never even heard about the Holy Spirit, right? Aquila and Priscilla involved in that. And they start preaching. They start teaching. And pretty soon, what do you have? You have riot breaking out in the streets. And then in chapter 20, Paul meets with the elders after he had left Ephesus, came back, meets with the elders and he says to them, I spent two years going house to house, door to door, teaching you in all kinds of places, all kinds of situations. But you guys remember something. A after my departure, ravenous wolves are going to come in and they're going to tear this place apart. You have to keep people in God's word. The prevailing word of the Lord that Luke writes about in Acts number 19 had to be kept in Ephesus, in the church, prevailing over the people so that they continue to be transformed by Jesus. Now understand what I'm about to say. This prevailing word initially was not an ingrown, internal thing. It was out there on the streets that the word of the Lord was prevailing. It was the people who were coming to Christ being willing out on the streets to own up to Jesus as Savior, to Jesus as Lord. It wasn't that they all became Christians, met in a room, started studying the Bible, and they just became like naval doctrinal gazers, and like, oh, it's just so great. No, they took it out there. And then when they were asked, they owned up to who they were in Jesus. They took their books of magic and trinkets of worship, they burned them in public, and it would seem to me that this work that Jesus says they need to take up might have something to do with their fidelity to Christ outside of the church. The first work they did was the work of faithfulness to Jesus in public and not in private.
And what I suspect happened was that the, the more they grew and the more knowledge that they gained and the more they loved their doctrine and the more they met in classes about doctrine, the less concerned they became about out there. But then a shift took place. Between when Paul writes and when John writes, a major shift takes place in policy with Rome. You know, initially, Rome looked at Christians and going like, well, what's the big deal? We don't have anything to be worried about there. They believe some guy rose from the dead. They only got one God. He can't mean much. But the way Christians lived began to undermine the force and the power of the world in which they lived. And once that began to happen, more and more and more cities in the empire and Christianity refused to participate in the cultic Roman religions, Christians began to get marginalized. People looked at them with suspicion. One emperor called Christianity a contagious superstition. And that attitude, again, had a lot to do with how Christians practiced their faith within the Christian community, both in the community and outside of it. They were generous to the poor. The church gave standing to women in a way that Roman culture and even Jewish culture had never given. Marriage held in high honor as being between a man and a woman. That's it. And they held it in high honor. They practiced chaste, loving relationships between men and women. They were deeply devoted to the worship of the one true God. And slowly but surely as the gospel goes out, lives are transformed. Rome is being transformed by the proclamation of the gospel, by the practice of the gospel, which is, of course, what Paul means when he says it is the power of God unto salvation. So not only are individual people being delivered from bondage of sin and death, but now an entire civilization, an empire, is starting to be transformed as well. The accomplishment of Jesus, who through his death and brought forgiveness for sins and through the power of his resurrected life, began to bring hope and people are turning out of Jesus and no longer pledging loyalty to the emperor. And the emperor begins to hear about this and policy begins to change towards Christians. No longer couldn't they be ignored. Persecution begins to rise, begins to increase. And you have to ask yourself, did the church at Ephesus, which is so commended for its doctrine, not only begin to forget about loving their neighbor as themselves, but the pressure out there in the public became so great that they started to back up from their fidelity to Jesus out of fear of what? Prison? Losing their job, losing their home, mistreatment, which history tells us is exactly what took place. The 
warning by Jesus is clear, though. I will come to you and remove your lampstand unless you repent. You know, all over our nation this morning, there are hundreds and hundreds of churches that will have their physical lights on, but absolutely no spiritual light is present. Their lampstand has been removed. Lights are on, but they're not. And in many cases over the years, they cared more about being on the right side of human history than about being faithful to the history of Jesus. The brother I was talking to yesterday from Indianapolis, a retired pastor had been in that church, still in that church, 50, over 50 years, said that when he first came and pastored that church, all he could come up with among the 500 people who attended that church were eight Christians. This is back, again, 50 years ago. And he said, I just started preaching the gospel. And after a couple years, I was pretty much left with the original eight Christians and a few other Christians that come along the way and everybody else was gone. But today, the church now is faithful to the gospel. And well done to that pastor, who in his retirement passed it on to another guy who was being faithful to the gospel. And so what about us? You know, I don't have to tell you that public opinion about the Christian faith has changed dramatically in our nation in our lifetime. Once we had a privileged position in the public eye, now not so much. We had better not hedge our bets to win favor from neighbors and friends and relatives or at work thinking, well, you know, Jesus will understand. Repent, go back to your former works, or I'm going to remove your lampstand from you. Because if you abandon love, it's not too long before Jesus is outside the door Will you let me in? And this, of course, is why a parish ministry that leans fully into apostolic preaching and apostolic pastoring is so critical for the time in which we live. The call to remember, the exhortation to repent are best given in the context of a local church ministry just like this one where we gather together and we encourage each other and we pray for one another and we are in transparent relationships. Remember, just as he knew the church at Ephesus, he knows us, he knows our fears, he knows our frustrations, he knows where we are in this place of pressure in a nation that just keeps moving further and further and further away from its moorings, hostility, and all of the complications in the public square today. But let us encourage one another to have ears that hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and not what CNN is saying or Fox News is saying or whatever thing you listen to. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying 
to the church that we might encourage one another to remember, to repent, and to do the works we've done at first, lest our lampstand is taken away. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to go alone on the road to recovery. We are the body of Jesus Christ. He is the head of his church. And through his spirit, he is with us today. So let me ask two questions, and I'm done. And I suspect this first question is um, up for discussion, and I would love to hear what you think. Have we as a church abandoned our love for Jesus in the way that I've talked about here? Not inside the building. If I went around the room, I'm pretty sure almost everybody in this room, I said, you know, do you love Jesus? You go, yeah, yeah, I love Jesus. You, do you believe that he died on the cross? He said, yes. Do you believe he's coming again? Yes. I'm not talking about in here. Have we abandoned love for Jesus out there? And the pressure points out there. And the social kind of re-engineering of our nation out there. And if so, will we repent? And the second question, again, I, I would love to have conversation with you about it. I do not believe that doctrine makes people dead. Uh, some, some people have used this text as an anti-doctrine text, and, and it's just so wrong. It's a misguided understanding of what's happening here. Jesus does not condemn them for their doctrine. In fact, he's in solidarity with them, especially against the Nicolaitans. He hates, they hate, they're together on Haiti. Sounds strange, but it is. True. Right? Doctrine's not the problem. Love is the problem. What fuels doctrine, right doctrine, has to be love. And I just would really enjoy a conversation about what will keep our love for Jesus fervent. What will keep it fervent. In the sermon last week, we saw how the word of the Lord prevailed. I pray that it is prevailing today because it is a pressing word. It is a weighty word it is vital for us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today and then to respond with willing, loving, and zealous obedience. Well, next week, we bring this to a close. We'll go back to the book of Ephesians and we'll um, try to answer this question again. Where is the love? But for now, we get to come to this table and we come together to it to be reminded again of the great love that Jesus had for us in his body broken and in his blood shed. But first, we must examine our own hearts. Where is the love? Is your love fully directed at Jesus or not? Are you in a loving relationship with the body of Christ or not? The table invites us to do business with God for our good, for our fellowship with him. And I pray that as we come together around it, 
It's our way of saying once again, we intend to keep the main thing the main thing. Love for Jesus. Father, as we uh, pause now to examine our hearts, I pray, O Lord, that you would cause your spirit to move and to strengthen us and help us not only within our own hearts to be turning away from sin, but, O God, by your grace, externally also, perhaps we need to have a chat with somebody afterwards or before we even walk up to that table to tell them that we're sorry or that we've acted unbecomingly or whatever it might be, or we need to confess, O Lord, some sin where we have stepped back from owning up to you as Lord and Savior. Help us to remember the warning of this table, lest we eat judgment to ourselves. And now, O God, give us grace as we are quiet before you to do the work you've given us to do. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.